Just a heads up before we begin this episode, the Baron of Botox deals with difficult topics, including depression and suicide. It is not recommended for young audiences. Stay tuned to the end of the episode for information on resources for anyone who is suffering from depression or suicidal thoughts. Let's begin the show. First of all, when I go looking at art, I have to be moved by the art, and it has to give me a good feeling. I don't like morbid art because there's so much morbidity and there's so much bad news all the time in the paper. So when I look at art, I want to feel more inspired and I want it to be a little more uplifting. But I think, but of all, I think the art, it's the way it makes you feel. And I think certain pieces of art move you in different ways. They evoke different emotions. And I think it's something that you really can't even put into words. It's more of an inherent feeling. From Imperative Entertainment, I'm Justine Harmon, and this is The Baron of Botox. Episode 2, Origin Story. First, thank you, Justine. Very nice to meet you. I'm Stefan Koller. I'm president and CEO and owner of the Dr. Brand Skincare Line today and also taking care of the Dr. Brand Foundation. Stefan Kalu has worked for the Dr. Brand Skincare Line since 2003. The product line, which includes a $45 Pores No More Refiner Cream and a $75 Magnetite Age Defier Mask, part of the Do Not Age collection, has always been operated separately from the New York and Miami dermatology practices. When we meet at a breezy sound studio in Coral Gables, Florida, only a few miles from where Dr. Brandt died, Stefan walks me through his 16-year history at the company. He says he started in regional sales in Miami, then became national sales director in 2005. In 2010, he moved to Asia to expand the brand as the international sales director. Then, in 2012, he was named president and CEO. When Dr. Brandt passed away in 2015 and Stefan became co-steward of the entire estate, he bought Maggie Maloney, the other estate trustee and Brandt's longtime assistant, out of the operation. It's been a beautiful ride because we were not very consistent with this company until, tragically, we lost Dr. Brandt in 2015. And during this hard time, this is what I need to figure out what I wanted to do myself and what we should do and repurchase the company to make sure we can keep on the legacy of Dr. Brand. So you're French. I'm sure you can hear that. So I'm going to speak as slow as I can. Um, what brought you to Miami in the first place? Oh, first, I knew Miami because of my family and friends. I came here. Also, long time ago, I used to do modeling, and the modeling had been traveling all over the world. Stefan tells me it was then, 25 years ago, when he was modeling and finishing up school, that he met the dermatologist through mutual friends. 25 years ago, Stefan would have been 18, which would have made Dr. Brandt 45. 25 years ago, uh, Miami was quite small, and you used to meet the same people over and over. And that's where I get a chance to meet uh, personally Dr. Brandt the first time through different uh, friends. And all going on, you know, you get a chance to meet in different time and you start learning people. And that's why I start developing a, a, a partnership, relationship with Dr. Brandt. The Dr. Brandt skincare line isn't just products. It's a holistic approach to taking care of yourself. He tells me he and Dr. Brandt shared this same philosophy and that they complemented one another, both personally and professionally. When we used to do events, I think we are the best in the world. 
we always thought maybe we knew each other in another life. This is what he was told me because we click and connect. Stefan wants to keep Dr. Brandt's memory alive through the foundation he created in 2015. The foundation's purpose, he says, is to, quote, elevate the dialogue and remove the stigma surrounding mental health. An artist is anyone who can create, someone who transforms the ordinary and creates something inspirational, something beautiful. In a video posted to YouTube a year after Dr. Brandt's death, entitled The Dr. Brandt Foundation, it's Stefan's turn to be in front of the camera. Unlike the casual and lo-fi videos from Dr. Brandt's living room, this spot is slick and expertly produced. A camera sweeps across a modern living room as Stefan does yoga and nails a headstand on a gleaming white floor. In another scene, he's shown layering a blazer over a starched white shirt and meeting his own eyes in the mirror. Then he's shooting down the highway in his Tesla, the Miami cityscape gleaming in the background. It all feels like a compelling commercial for a very sexy car. And then there's the voiceover. I never realized how difficult it could be to lose a mentor and a friend, especially to suicide. It is a feeling that is hard to describe. Sometimes you wish you could go back and have done more to help. But now it's about looking to the future and helping others in need. It has not been easy long days and even longer nights, but every day has strived to keep his legacy alive. Stefan doesn't even like to use the word depression. He thinks it's too loaded, too charged with negative connotation. He tells me that it's been hard to be the guy tasked with keeping the lights on, that there were difficult decisions to make and debts to absolve. He says he didn't have time to properly grieve. First, I'm the one who found him. I opened the garage. I was supposed to do yoga with him early in the morning, and I found him, despite there were people in the house watching him, so it was quite difficult, because that's the way I see him the last. And I was devastated, but honestly, I'm going to be sincerely honest. Is my first reaction was to keep everyone together, because everyone was family. So for me, I was thinking more rationally at this time, and I realized that that it took me probably uh, more than a year and a half to start really to grieve uh, about what happened because I was fighting on so many directions at the same time. Yes, it's been a struggle because life didn't teach you how to be ready for such a task, but from a business side, just also to tell you is nothing was planned, and I didn't know about that, so... So we have to figure out what to do, meaning the bank stopped the credit line because everything depends on one unique man. I tell Stefan that my sense is, five years later, people are still angry with him. Many, including Brandt's personal art dealer, Paul Frank McCabe, don't understand why he would make the executive decision to auction off a collection of some 200 pieces put together over more than 20 years, barely six months after his death. Stefan says he didn't have a choice. That was a shame because for me, I wanted to keep the hearts and obviously embrace the hearts, maybe share with museum and that's part of his legacy. But it was pure financial reasons and because all the debt uh, that he, he has. And that's what we did. And that's why we have to, to sell it. Toward the end of our conversation, I asked the one thing so many have wondered. Did Stefan, a married French model turned skincare line exec with two kids, carry on a romantic relationship 
with the single, gay, and 27 years his senior, Dr. Brandt. I know that a lot of people talk behind because obviously what a young guy would spend so much time with an older guy. I didn't have any romantic, but truly I have an relationship. It's love, yes, certainly. I love him as much as I love my wife and my kids. And Stefan's not the only one I ask about this, despite the fact that it's not exactly cool to try and out people on the record. But in this case, with so many millions of dollars at stake, and Brant was also reported to bring in an eight-figure salary outside of product proceeds, the nature of the relationship seems relevant. A month before I met Stefan, I asked Dr. Brant's friend, Garen, the celebrity hairstylist, to explain their dynamic. That was the most asked question after Fred died. Everyone say, what? I heard that he was, you know, and I says, you can hear everything you want. You can make up everything you want. But I am, I am, I am a hundred percent sure there was never a sexual relationship between Stefan and, and Fred. That is what people want to believe. And I, I, there's no way, there's just no way. I just know from being a gay man. And I know that I had an admiration for someone and in my mind, I wanted it, but down deep, it wasn't. It was just that they were my friend and I had to accept it that way. I think Fred met Stefan and brought Stefan into his world. And Fred knew that Stefan was straight and got married and had children. I think he created a world, which I totally understand, is that he put Stefan in charge of his skincare line and he told me several times he said i just want you to know that stefan his children and his wife are my family my family does not exist for me my real family and i never dug in but i understood what he meant he created a happy family for himself he was godfather to the both children they were always their holidays and you know he might have been mesmerized by Stefan because Stefan's a very handsome man but I actually believe he knew his place and he knew that it wasn't a it wasn't going to be him and Stefan it's an interesting proposition a classically beautiful young man serving as the face to Dr. Brandt's empire it's like Oscar Wilde's Dorian Gray an ageless, idealized version of himself. In so many ways, Stefan Kalou was a walking embodiment of the kind of natural beauty and sex appeal patients hope to achieve by seeing Dr. Brandt. The kind of natural beauty and sex appeal that, if we're being totally honest, no amount of money can ever convincingly replicate. A month after I met with Stefan in Miami, I connected with Dr. Brandt's colleague, Dr. Jolie Kaufman. Dr. Kaufman has a blonde lob and round high cheeks, a tempered version of Dr. Brandt's signature or what New York Magazine once dubbed the new, new face. She's one of those rare people who feels like a friend the first time you speak with her on the phone. Dr. Kaufman spent years learning from and working alongside Dr. Brandt in his Miami office, the same office she continues to work out of but is now called Skin Associates of South Florida. The two were close. They shared a lot, she says. The day he died, Dr. Kaufman went to his house and sat on the stoop while paramedics removed his body. We had been playing phone tag for weeks. So when we finally do connect, 
I'm somewhere on I-95 with my husband and our two small children, who I promptly kick out of the car. I immediately ask her about Stefan. When you worked with Dr. Brandt, were you familiar with Stefan? Did he interact with the practice at all? What, what exactly is his role being the president of the skincare line? How does that sort of dovetail with what you guys were doing? You know what? I think I'm going to totally pass on him on this whole thing. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to touch that at all? Oh, my God. Yeah, no, that'll have to be off the record at a later date. Okay. This is something I was warned about when I started looking into this story. There are secrets. There are factions. Many tell me that Stefan and Brandt's long-standing assistant, Maggie, are arch enemies. I was not able to reach Maggie for comment. One person I interviewed actually told me she hoped that I had thick skin because people would, quote, hate me for reopening these wounds. And perhaps the one thing more fiercely guarded than Dr. Brandt's love life? His origin story. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On paper, his background, growing up Jewish in post-World War II Newark, is something out of a Philip Roth novel. But as his friend, the award-winning critic, essayist, and novelist Daphne Merkin puts it, While Philip Roth, having just recently read something he wrote, always sang an ode to his background, had the warm family, I think in Fred's case, this is what I picked up, it was maybe shabbier, but I don't get the sense he reacted so much to the shabbiness. My sense when he talked about his parents was that there was little communication, that he was left alone a lot. I think he early on was perceived as weird. He seemed to have a longing for a family background of greater closeness. And I don't get the sense he was remotely close to either parent. Frederick Sheldon Brandt was born June 26, 1949, in Newark, New Jersey. He was the second son of Irving and Esther, nay Shimkowitz, Brandt. Irving was a veteran. He served as a private first class in the medical department during World War II. Together, the Brandts ran a candy store in the predominantly Jewish and suburban neighborhood of Chancellor Avenue, Irvington, located about five miles outside of Newark. The candy store and young Fred's affinity for sweets, would later serve as anecdotal fodder for his famously disciplined lifestyle. In his book, 10 Minutes, 10 Years, he writes, When I was little, there was nothing I loved more than stuffing myself with sweets. Candy made the day complete. As a kid, he says he was addicted to orangina soda and chocolate ice cream, which he would eat by the carton. He writes in the book, 
My father was a diabetic who didn't take care of himself or modify his diet as well as he could have. And he died way too young from renal failure. Irving Brandt passed away in 1965, when Fred was only 15 years old. I'll let his high school friend, Alvin Felsenberg, set the scene. I met Fred Brandt my sophomore year at Irvington High School. He sat next to me in Mrs. Mildred Bell's English class. The way she did the seating chart, I wound up sitting next to him. Uh, I'm sure he had straight A's. I'd be shocked if he had an A- minus or a B plus or anything. He was very, very bright. And he did have a bit of a glow about him in the sense that he knew he was bright and he knew he was going places. Johnson had beat Goldwater. And there were a lot of racial issues at the time. Goldwater had voted against the 64 Civil Rights Bill. And we bordered Newark. And this is uh, kind of on everyone's mind. 1967, the month we graduated, was the Six-Day War. The Six-Day War was Israel's brief but successful campaign to seize back land from its neighbors Egypt, Syria, and Jordan, which resulted in a truce between the countries. For Jews everywhere, it was a victory. Here, this little nation beat back all of its neighbors in a relatively short amount of time, and there was great celebration at the time. I know he was part of that. Alvin is long-winded and has an encyclopedic memory for social context. He remembers everything from that year. Like the time he played Brutus to Dr. Brandt's Julius Caesar in English class, and Mrs. Bell gave the boy who played Cassius a six-inch wooden ruler for a sword. Or, like the single time he was granted access into Fred's private life after Irving Brandt died in 1965. I remember some of us went to pay our respects at the funeral parlor. We didn't stay very long. He didn't seem to want people to visit or hang around, so we didn't. I mean, he didn't say leave. We weren't doing anything to help the situation. He was upset. As I mentioned in my email, I've been having a lot of difficulty finding people who can speak to his origin story, so to speak. Um, I've tried to be in touch with his brother, Paul. I don't know if you knew him, but... I didn't know he had a brother. He did have a brother. They were not very close. I gathered that his family, I don't know how he was with his mother, but he didn't want anyone to talk about his family ever. I don't know why. Even when he was young? Oh, yeah. I don't know why. Alvin says if Fred had close friends, he doesn't know who they were. He says he never knew personal stuff about him, what music he listened to, who he had a crush on, or if someone had a crush on him. He says they lost touch after high school, but that that wasn't atypical of the area or the era. Most people wanted to leave Irvington. Getting out was kind of a general MO. Nothing on him that didn't come back. I mean, we wanted to get on with things. We were looking forward, not backward. And there was so much stuff in the world going on. I mean, and guys who were getting drafted. Vietnam was on everybody's mind, like Trump is now. Every day was Vietnam something or other. Either a demonstration or somebody was getting drafted or someone we knew had been killed. I reached out to other people who were in his class at Irvington. A guy named Alan Rosenblum, who was in the political science club with Fred and Alvin, wrote back that he didn't really know him. Alan even reached out to two other people in the group, neither of whom knew him either. But in a yearbook picture of the club from 1966, there's Fred Brandt standing in the back row, wearing a pressed white shirt, skinny tie, and chinos with a preppy belt. He's skinny. His dark hair is short and parted. He's craning his neck just a touch to look a little taller. He's smiling. Finding information about Fred Brandt's formative years is difficult. As I told Alvin, I've tried and failed to connect with his one older brother, Paul, from whom he was estranged for most of his adult life. I was, however, able to get in touch with Paul's son, Micah. 
Micah is a documentary filmmaker. His latest, Robbery the Heart, which he says he spent 10 years making, is about a small town in Germany rising up against anti-Semitism. A GoFundMe page for the film lists over 40 screening engagements across the U.S., mostly at public libraries, Jewish community centers, and synagogues. It's raised $50. When we meet for breakfast in New York's Greenwich Village back in May, the first thing that strikes me about Micah is how shy he is. He's short and a bit stocky. His head is shaved, and he wears a rubber pride bracelet and a t-shirt that matches his grayish-blue eyes. He doesn't make a lot of prolonged eye contact. Due to his dad's rift with his brother, Micah, who grew up in Connecticut, wasn't all that close with his uncle. In fact, they only met once, when Micah was in fifth grade. The impetus for the reunion is something out of a Tom Hanks movie. We had a writing assignment. It was like a pen pal kind of assignment to do. And I had known that I had an uncle who I'd never met. And I was probably, I would say, 10 years old at the time, maybe 11. I don't think he's ever seen any of us at that point. So 10 or 11-year-old Micah decides to write a letter to an uncle he's never met. And a few days after he sends the note, his father receives a phone call. Days later, he called my father. We're probably not talking with each other in probably several years. I don't know exactly how many years. It might have been 10 years or maybe just a few years, but quite a bit of time. He had called my father and said, oh, you know, I see a letter from your son. And it was like really nice. Like, how are you doing? It's nice to, you know, talk to you again. It would be great if the kids came down, you know, because he was living in Florida. In the spring of 1989 or 1990, Micah and his three sisters go down to Miami to reconnect with Dr. Brandt, who is already a successful dermatologist. His dad, Paul, a contract lawyer for a helicopter company, pilots a prop plane from New Haven to D.C., and then the four miners catch a commercial flight to Florida, unaccompanied. It's Micah's first time on an airplane, and he remembers one of his sisters throwing up the whole ride down. Dr. Brandt's housekeeper, Gloria, picks the family up at the airport and drives them to the house. My uncle was kind of waiting for us, you know, that evening when we got in and very, you know, warm and receptive, you know, welcoming guy, just so happy to see all of us. And we were just so happy to be there. And we immediately saw like the resemblance, you know, that him and my father had, you know, because they looked physically similar. And then, you know, he explained to us that, you know, he, he works a lot and he wouldn't really have too much time to hang out, you know, except for like evenings when he got home. And Gloria would be, like, taking us out and showing us around Miami and such. So the following day, Gloria took us out. In the evening when his uncle gets home from work, the family reconnects. And it's nice. One night they order in a pizza. Another they all watch a laser disc. Micah, who was raised Orthodox, doesn't read too much into his uncle's lifestyle. There's some men around, but nothing pervy happens, he tells me. Until many years later, when he begins to question his own sexuality. But by then, his dad and uncle have fallen back out of touch. Micah regrets not having the opportunity to connect. And, you know, over the years, I always thought about him and I always wanted to, you know, see him and, like, talk to him more and everything. Just never had the chance, unfortunately. So it was, it was very sad for me to hear about what had happened to him. I was really kind of mad at myself for not, you know, making the time and not having more opportunities to spend with him. Um, that I could have had, could have really built up a relationship, you know, with my uncle that I think would have probably been very helpful for the both of us. 
you know, because I myself, you know, dealt with a lot of, you know, issues of suicide as a child and a teenager and, you know, loneliness and not feel loved and such like that. Micah says mental health issues plague his part of the family tree. The family was strict. Communication wasn't great. Growing up in my nuclear family, a couple of us, you know, did have some mental issues. You know, there were, you know, hospitalizations and, you know, interventions and things like that. We were all very aware of it. Some of us still deal with it nowadays. That was tough to grow up kind of in that environment, to be dealing with that. It was depressing, for lack of a better word. And I think I kind of had my father's persona where I kept in a lot of things. I didn't really talk about things or voice my opinion, you know, growing up. So it wasn't really until, like, I was in college or adulthood that I actually, you know, saw a counselor and, like, got a lot of my frustrations out. You know, kind of just talk about it in a very open environment, for lack of better words. Micah won't go into the cause of the rift between the brothers because he'd rather not speak on his father's behalf, he says. But he does tell me that as the years went on, his uncle's ever-changing face was a point of contention for the family. We were all aware of his practice, and he did, you know, to other people, and then eventually what he did to himself physically. I mean, my nuclear family is very naturalistic and holistic, you know, kind of people. So they kind of, you know, frown upon that stuff, for lack of better words. So we didn't really, like, look upon it positively, I would say. We still loved him and, like, accepted him and everything because, you know, he was our uncle. But, you know, we just didn't understand it. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Okay, so you're probably wondering what Fred Brandt used to look like before he discovered the benefits of injecting his face with botulinum toxin and other substances. I'll tell you this. It's hard to reconcile the two versions. The difference is so drastic, in fact, that two days after his death, DailyMail.com published an article with the lengthy headline, Picture Exclusive, About Face, colon. Famed plastic surgeon Dr. Brandt's high school photos reveal the handsome student he was before he became the object of ridicule on Tina Fey's Netflix show. The article includes side-by-side comparisons of a blonde Botox Fred and the Fred from his 1967 yearbook. A senior year portrait shows him in a white button-down and black bow tie with his brown hair parted neatly. His nose is prominent but not large. His lips, closed in a small smile, are naturally and attractively plump. He's elegant and intelligent-looking a dead ringer for Jared Kushner. His childhood neighbor, Roberta Abramson, distinctly remembers him as good-looking. Roberta is 82 now and gives, as the kids say, zero fucks. Here she is. Freddie was a wonderful boy. He was the most beautiful child you could ever look at. He had curly blonde hair and bright blue eyes. You see, I know Freddie very well. We grew up in the six-family house across from the school that my aunt owned and his daddy had the candy store on the corner and right opposite was our apartment. And contrary to what almost everyone who knew him as an adult tells me, that he was scarred by his upbringing, 
Roberta remembers his childhood, though quite modest, as idyllic. And let me tell you, I was there the day Freddie came home from the hospital. He had the most loving, wonderful parents. His father was a veteran. He bought the candy store across from the school and the kids would come over for lunch. And Esther would cook hamburgers in a square skillet. His parents worked very diligently and they were wonderful, loving people. And whoever wrote that crazy article, I don't know if it was in Vogue or where, that he had parents who didn't pay attention is an imbecile. Both versions of the story confirm one thing. Fred Brandt wasn't going to let his past dictate his future. They had a kitchen behind the store. They had a a living room that is even as big as my bathroom here where I live. And they had a room and that was a pull-out sofa for the parents. And the boys had a bunk bed. And that's how we lived. And if you ever saw how they lived, it would boggle your mind and how far Frederick went. The Baron of Botox is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was created, written, and reported by me, Justine Harmon. Executive producer is Jason Hoke. Produced and engineered by Shane Freeman, with additional editing from Jasmine Cross and Jason Hoke. Original music by Brandon Bush. Barbara Keene is our researcher and fact checker. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. If you like the show, tell your friends and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. The Baron of Botox is a 10-episode series with new episodes available every Tuesday. Have questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. If you or someone you know is struggling from depression, find local support and more resources by visiting NAMI, N-A-M-I dot org. If you are having suicidal thoughts, you can reach a trained crisis counselor by calling the toll-free National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800 800- 273-TALK or texting NAMI, N-A-M-I to 741-741. You are not alone. Thank you for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.